0: Hi, everyone. It's June 21st, and I want to welcome all of you to the adult meeting. Uh, First of all, happy Father's Day. Uh, Wishing you all a uh, a wonderful Father's Day to all the fathers out there. And uh, first and foremost, of course, our two fathers, Abuna Kirillos and Abuna Andrew. Uh, They've both been truly amazing um, uh, pastors and fathers at St. Paul's, and uh, I know that all of us feel the same way, that we really appreciate all the effort and love that they put into everything, uh, all the service they've done for us, and especially during this time of quarantine, uh, where they've really stepped up and and made themselves accessible and the church accessible as best they could uh, during this time. Um, So I wanted to talk uh, today and continue our series about the liturgy. So today is the second talk in the the series on the liturgy. And just to remind you all that uh, we have three series going on simultaneously. Uh, Tony Solomon is talking about marriage and family issues, um, and Peter Rafala is talking about dogmatic studies, and theological studies, and I'm doing a series on the liturgy. Um, and today's the second part, and it's about liturgy and history. Uh, but before you, you know, get turned off by the name uh, and sounds a little boring, well, hopefully uh, you give it a shot because I think there's a lot of a lot of relevance to it. Um, uh, you know, just to remind us of this beautiful quote by Saint John Chrysostom: "It is needful to understand the miracle of the mysteries, what it is, why it was given, and why it it." it why is it why it profits and um ultimately you know the uh i think i mistyped it there um ultimately the 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 importance of the of the eucharist and studying all of the mysteries is because it's life it's part of the the ethos and the fabric of orthodoxy and so something especially as, as important as the eucharist the liturgy of the eucharist it's essential that we understand fully what we're getting into since this is the cornerstone um, of, the, of Orthodox worship, and as we talked about last time, I, I showed you that quote by Pastor Chan where he, he talks, I, I dream of, of the church coming together and revolving around the body of Christ, and, and this dream is our reality, if you will. Uh, it's something we live every day and how we we roll. This is the schedule. The institution is what we talked about last week. And this week, we're going to talk about the historic uh, and comparative analysis. And then, as you can see, there's a few more uh, in the series uh, before we uh, actually start talking about the actual liturgy. And we're, God willing, uh, God gives us the strength. We'll go through the liturgy piece by piece and kind of talk about the different parts of liturgy, what they mean. But I feel like before we can even get to all of that, it's very important just to understand the background of what is going on. So why study the liturgy uh, or anything spiritual, right? And, and so sometimes we think there's this dichotomy, right? There's this the spiritual world and the theolo- theological world. And, you know, there's this theology that's out there and dogma and rites and rituals and history and all that stuff. But I don't want that stuff. I want to be a spiritual person. I want to live a spiritual life, right? And I don't want all of this knowledge and, and book knowledge and stuff like that. But the first thing to understand is understanding allows me to fully participate with my whole being. Right, so it's not it's not just that um, I I can I can come to the Eucharist and comprehend what's going on, and this enhances my spiritual life. It enhances my experience in the liturgy, uh, and most importantly, it allows me to participate fully not just not just in my heart and my spirit, but in my mind, in my intellect, and every part of me, physically uh, included. All of it comes together uh, in the Eucharist, and in the case of the history, this particular talk the importance is that it, it allows me to better understand mistakes in the past uh, and helps us all to avoid them in the future and and as you'll see as we start going some of the mistakes in the past uh, predominantly by the western church are things that we are experiencing now in the coptic orthodox church and some things we can we can we can learn from and and become aware of and so we don't go down the same path right especially since um, you know they've they've gone down some paths and dealt with some issues that we are now dealing with and so we can learn to, to see how they dealt with those things um, and see if we can do that do it and learn from their mistakes a little bit better so quick review from last time the word liturgy literally means lit means people erg means work so it means work of the people so it's a public service undertaken uh, by and for and through the people right so this is not just something that the clergy does this is all of the people all of the congregation they're all called co-celebrants in the liturgy we all come together and we do this this thing and so any any service can be a liturgy we can have liturgy of baptism liturgy of marriage liturgy of the the, the blessing of water these are all liturgies that we have and technically the one we're talking about today is the liturgy of the eucharist itself and we talked last time about sources of knowledge how do we know what we know Uh, the biblical apostolic and historical knowledge Uh, but most importantly we, we 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 went through this this concept of brethren stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us either by word or by mouth a word of mouth or by letter and this is what uh saint paul taught them it's not just what we wrote to you but if we told you something you should do those things so there's this, this living tradition that, that the church has never departed from. It's alive and continuing. And the Apostle Paul you know, tells the Thessalonians, just because I didn't write it down, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, uh, obviously. Um, but this, gets, of course, gets lost on us because we're so detached that, that we don't have St. Paul's words, but we have his letter. Um, however, as Orthodox and as traditional churches, we do have his words at some level because those words were given to uh, apostles and given two bishops and given two clergy that continued on in the sacred uh, tradition. Uh, again, a reminder from last time, this word, do this in remembrance of me. And the question is, is it just remembrance? Is it just a memorial? Is it just a symbol? Uh, and we talked about this last time, the word anamnesis, it comes from the same word as amnesia, or, uh, which, which we all know means to forget something. Just, not just to forget the past, uh, but to forget the present. And so anamnesis means amnesia, so not amnesia. So instead of forgetting the past and the present, it means to live in the past and in the present. So a very important concept is that we only offer one Eucharist. The the Eucharist was only offered once. It was offered by Christ. So that very, as St. John Chrysostom says, that very same supper, at which Christ was present is accomplished. The eucharistic supper, what we do in the liturgy of church does not differ from that supper in any way. In fact, we partake and participate in it. And we said that it is an abuna that performs the liturgy, that, that conducts the liturgy. It is Christ himself. And the Abuna stands there and represents and shows us Christ in, a, in an incarnate form, shows us a tangible example, a tangible symbol of, of Christ. But it is Christ himself at the altar, not the priest. All right, St. John Chrysostom says, he who celebrated the divine Eucharist at the Last Supper, Christ, is the same one who now also performs these mysteries. So it's, it's, it, it, it's still Christ. We priests are in the position of servants. The one who sanctifies and changes the holy gifts is Christ himself. So where are you during the liturgy? And so if, if we really be- understand this concept of anamnesis, right, that I not just remember this past event as something that happened in the past, but rather that it's a living thing that I'm actually there at the Eucharist itself Right. This is why when we look at an icon as opposed to a picture uh, of the Eucharist, we see that at the icon of the Eucharist. If you look carefully at the icon, you find that you are at the table. Right. And so we don't remember that event as a past event. We are we 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 live in that event, that continuous Eucharistic supper. So every icon, as I go through uh, and I scroll through these icons, you'll see each icon. You are at the table and you are reliving the icon, the, the event with Christ uh, himself, right? So there's only one Eucharistic supper. There's only one Christ who conducted it, and we partic- participate in this living uh, sacrament. So let's go. Let's start our new talk. What did the Lord leave the disciples? Well, when Christ ascended to heaven, He left them several things, right? He left them all the books of the Old Testament. So the the disciples had the books of the Old Testament. They had the tradition, but limited tradition they had created at the time. He left them the Holy Spirit to guide them. Right, the Pentecost that we celebrated a few weeks ago, and he left them the liturgy. Right? He said, do this in remembrance of me. He, he conducted the liturgy, and he left it for them. So the early liturgy, and I want to talk a little bit about how the early liturgy looked. Uh, it's important to note that the first gospel was St. Was Mark's Gospel. It was written around 55 AD. The exact date isn't known. Um, but it was written you know 30 years, 20 years after the ascension, um, after Christ left. And so for the first 20 years of Christianity, there was no gospel at all written. No one had actually written down anything. So you know, where did where did the what did the Christians read? What did they do when they get together? What did they talk about? What was their what was their activity? And so people found the gospel in the liturgy. All right? So you know there's no there's there's no gospels to read, right? So liturgy became an intricate part of early life. And we, we read this in the history books, the, the catechumens that were in Rome and 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 how the, the Christians worship down there and to avoid persecution. But since we have no gospels, we know that the word of God, the, the the Bible, right, is and the body of Christ is the word of God. So they simply found, right, they found the gospels in the Eucharist, right? The Eucharist was the living body that they took right that was the word of god the logos of god that they took uh, every day and the liturgy was something to be lived and not performed it was life it wasn't a, a performance where i read the book and it says i'm supposed to do these actions now and then i do these actions and i go and i stand it was a part of their life it was it was intricate right there was there was no separation between personal and Public worship, right? I prayed before the liturgy, I prayed at the liturgy, and I prayed after the liturgy, right? And during the liturgy. And all of it was intricately woven, right? It wasn't like, well, I've got my prayer life, but now I'm going to go to church and I'm going to do my thing at church, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to go in my room and I'm going to pray, right? And there is this we, we, have, we have these two kinds of, of very important prayer, right? We have this personal prayer and we have this corporal prayer. And the two are integrated. In fact, the fathers often tell us that um, if if we don't pray before the liturgy, we won't have much to say at the liturgy, right? It just becomes a part of it, right? But it intensifies, and the liturgy brings out the intensity of my prayers the entire week. It's like this culmination. In fact, if you look at the cycle of the church, right, we have these cycles in the church. We have. Daily cycles, right? We have the Igbeo or the first, third, sixth, ninth hour, etc., right? And we have weekly cycles where we have matins and vespers, and then Tzibeha, and then the and and uh, uh, and then the Eucharist. And we have monthly cycles, and we have annual cycles. We have these cycles, and the weekly cycle of the liturgy becomes the culmination, the peak of the of the spiritual life that week. And the the liturgy back then was very simple in character. In fact, none of the words were fixed. Um, they, they, uh, they didn't, they didn't have written prayers like we do that we, the priest just reads. In fact, prayers are just prayed, right? They came from the heart and sometimes they would change and they would ch- sometimes change weekly and there's different characteristics. Um, but the key to the Eucharist was, was the body of Christ. Right. That was there there was nothing more important there, nothing more to it than that was it. We came together around the body of Christ. He became this living thing, this, you know, as we talked about this tree of life. Right. That sprouts out in all of us. Right. And this tree of life is what grows in us and creates in us the image and likeness of God. He, He literally works from the inside out. Right. And. uh. Communion was the, the key part of the liturgy, right? This this concept of I'm going to go attend the liturgy and then not take communion. You know, I'll just go, I'll take a blessing and I'll just attend, I'll stand there. This is a very foreign concept of the church. I mean, what's the point? What's the point of attending a liturgy and not taking communion or just standing there and taking a blessing or going to socialize is usually what, what ends up happening. Right? This concept is very foreign. Right? In fact, the concept was we go, we we take the Eucharist. We have an agape meal together as a community, and then we leave. We go back to our own personal spiritual lives. And so, in fact, back then the deacons um, would every single Sunday carry the mysteries to all those who couldn't take communion. So that was a key job of the early deacons and the early um, diaconate that that role in the church was they would take communion to people in prisons and who were sick and who were ill and whoever couldn't take communion that day for some whatever reason, that was the deacon's job is they would take communion. So com- the, the act of taking communion was the essential part of it, right? And i liked and like that uh, during the the, the pandemic, uh, you know, in, in, in our diocese, Mbisopin made the very wise decision to say, look, you know, we're not just going to live stream videos and you watch. Right? If if we're not going to take communion, you know, there's kind of just no point in watching. Right? There's no point in just watching a live stream of, a, of someone else doing the liturgy for you. You know, and, and so he pushed to open the churches so we could take communion because that was the key part of the liturgy. It's not watching it, listening to it on an MP3 or watching it on YouTube or whatever the case may be, but rather participating in it mystically um and that leads to my next quote like the liturgy was mystical and there's this beautiful quote uh from abuna teres he says truly i wonder whether the church during the celebration of the eucharist is raised to heaven to be with her divine bridegroom right so whether the entire church just goes up to heaven or whether the earth itself is transformed into heaven as the heavenly bridegroom himself comes with his angels, comes down with his angels, to embrace and take for himself his bride whom he loved. And so he's wondering, are we all transported up to heaven or whether heaven, earth becomes heaven during the liturgy, right? So this is is what the early liturgy looked like, right? This very mystical, very beautiful, very prayerful, very thoughtful um, uh, time of worship that culminated in taking communion. Right and becoming having this this seed planted in me the the body the living body of Christ right that then becomes the living body that 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 infects uh, me and and makes me changes me. One of one of the beautiful prayers, uh, and we'll get to this at some point, is the Epiclesis in the, in the liturgy where we ask the Holy Spirit to come and descend uh, upon the, the bread and the wine and turn them into the body and blood. But the prayers of the priest are very interesting. He says he doesn't just say descend upon the bread and wine, but a descend upon all of us. So there's two prayers at that moment. Change the bread and the wine into the body and change me into the body. Change both of us, right? Transform both of us, right? Morph us both into the body of Christ and make us part of this living, uh, this living organism. So, uh, as I mentioned briefly before, the only things in the liturgy before were themes uh, in the text of liturgy. So the words were not set, and so there are six major uh, themes that happened in every liturgy, and they're very consistent across you know the history of the church. Um, But the words were not set. So there was always a prayer of thanksgiving. Uh, There was a time to pray, uh, praising God and his creation. Uh, There was a time for the anamnesis, right? Remembering the Lord's words, take eat of this, all of you, for this is my body, which is broken for you and for many, so on and so forth. There was the epiclesis, which I just mentioned. This is the invocation of the Holy Spirit. This is when the Holy Spirit comes down and changes the bread and the wine. There were some litanies, some prayers, uh, because after the bread and the wine are changed and Christ is with us present. It just kind of makes sense to ask him for stuff, right? So we ask for the peace of the church. We ask for the patriarch. We ask for the priest. We ask for the servants. We ask for the crops. We ask for all those who offered things, right? We, all, we ask for all of these things, right? And then finally, the distribution of the mysteries where everyone takes communion. So none of these were actually set. And so the words of the liturgy themselves were only set after heresy starting, right? So you can imagine someone standing there and starting to pray, and they would just pray whatever they thought. They would start praying Thanksgiving, and they would thank God for a while. And then after they were done, they would praise God for his creation for a while. And then they would remember some of the words. But you can imagine that someone, for example, who has an incorrect belief, is a heretic, or has a a, a poor understanding of theology, could say some things that were just wrong. Right? and he you could start, you know, saying whatever. And so once some heretics started like writing liturgies, the church said, "Well, you know, maybe we shouldn't just, you know, let everyone say whatever they want to say because not everyone is, you know, trained or educated or, or, or within the church enough to just be able to pray." So what they did is they picked some of the liturgies from some of the famous bishops, right? So as you know, in our church, we have this, the, the liturgy of St. Carlos, St. Basil and St. Gregory, right? So three big theologians in the church. And we thought to ourselves, okay, these guys are, 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 solid guys, right? And they they can, so it, and it's not like they sat down, those three saints sat down and wrote a liturgy. It wasn't like that. It was more, this was the liturgy that they prayed. Um, You can imagine that after a couple of years of praying the liturgy, you know, with these particular themes then after a while you kind of start to say the same thing, right? It's like, you know, in Sunday school when the prayer always, you know, reverts to, you know, please help those who didn't come this week, come next week, you know, that sort of thing, help the poor, right? There's kind of this group think, right? I can imagine as a, as a as a priest or bishop after a while I just start saying the same stuff. Well, what someone did is someone wrote down what St. Basil used to say when he prayed his liturgy. Uh, and then they started just using that as, as the text. Um, and having said that, These themes are set, right? But you can mix and match, which is what we do to this day, right? I mean, sometimes you'll see, you know, some a priest start with the St. Basil liturgy, and then at one of these points he'll switch to the St. the St. Gregorian liturgy, and then he'll switch back to the St. Basil liturgy, right? And and as long as they kind of keep the themes the same and they kind of move in lockstep with each other, uh, it's fine to kind of borrow from one another. A different liturgy so we see that today where some priests will fluidly move back and forth between different liturgies um, and that's okay right and that's something we can we can do today in this in our current environment so one of the, the early uh, the, the things I want to really focus on today is the Middle Ages um, and the also known as the dark ages and and so why we study the Middle Ages is not it has nothing to do with proving who's writer and saying you know ha look you know you guys are bad and we're good and, and none of this silliness um, and uh, there's a great quote, those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. And I think that's a very uh, fair assessment. Um, I think that the more we know what other peoples have gone through and what other challenges other it's just wise to, to read about their challenges and, and to kind of uh, work to avoid them if, if at all possible. Um, so the Western church made two mistakes. Uh, and the first one was the influence of politics. So during the, the, the Middle Ages, there was this mixture between um, the, the church and the politics. And this is a very dangerous mix, uh, because w- what happens is the church's influence, uh, it influenced in state affairs and the state influenced in its affairs. Uh, things like the Crusades that were, were wars, holy wars, where God told the people to go and conquer these lands. And a lot of these crusades were, uh, you know, uh, you read about their terrible things and a lot of people died. And the, the Pope of Rome, the, the emperor who just wanted to, a lot of soldiers would just tell the Pope of Rome, tell everybody this is a holy war. So they'll fight and they'll say, you know, I, I need to conquer this land, not for the emperor, which is the real reason, but for God. And so once politics mixes, um, it's, it's very dangerous, right? Because uh, clergy then becomes a powerful tool. It's, it's something I can use against people. And, and this is where we get saying this today, like uh, religion is the opium of the masses, where um, I can use religions to, to kind of get, you know, affect things that I want. And so if I can get a priest to say it or the bishop or the pope to say it, people will do it for me. And um, what this ends up doing is it secularize, secularizes clergy. And it neglects their spiritual duties for the salvation of souls. Clergy have one job, to get people to heaven for the salvation of their souls. It's not about politics. It's not about getting people elected. Uh, It's not about passing propositions or certain laws or political action committees. This is not the clergy's role. The clergy's role is to take people and take them to heaven through our Lord Christ and through repentance. And... Um, once, once those those things uh, that becomes unclear and other ulterior motives and other motivations come into play, well, then there's a whole slew of things we can start working on, and and we see this during our current times. To be frank, uh, lots of people want to get involved in politics, and they want the church to get involved in politics, and they want the church to take a stand, and. You know, the line is fuzzy as to what that stand should be, right? I mean, it's clear we take a stand against um, something that's wrong and injustice, and we're always called to be the light of the world and a tower, a light tower for the world, that, 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 the, that the ships of the world don't crash into the rocks, right? But, but how far does that go? Right. Do I influence public policy? Do I try to get a president elected who, who votes my way? Do I try to get senators elected? Do I raise money for political action committees? Do I, do I try to get certain laws passed and other ones opposed? How far do I go? These are, these are murky issues. They're very dangerous, um, in my humble opinion, that, that a clergy start to lose the focus of, I have to get my people to heaven, to, I really need to get this senator elected. And once I'm trying to get a senator elected or, or some um, legislation passed, I'm not looking at the, at, the, at the spiritual lives of my congregation or I'm distracted, We're, you know, best case scenario. Um, the second mistake is the use of Latin. And uh, this is a mistake that, that cost the Western church dearly. Uh, during this time, modern languages started to come into use, uh, you know French, English, and German, and all these other different languages and Latin and, uh, and, and Italian. And the church insisted on Latin. And the church said, look, we've been speaking Latin for a long time. Latin is the holy language. Our priests are taught in Latin. They learn theology in Latin. We really can't translate Latin into some of these other languages. Um, And they insisted on using Latin. And what this ended up doing was sort of devastating the spiritual life. Because what ended up happening was a lot of people didn't know Latin. Um, and the priests would continue to pray in Latin because they wanted to pray the mass in Latin and the people would just kind of stand there. And unfortunately, eventually it it, it started to erode the spiritual life of the liturgy, right? When you're just standing there and someone is praying in a different language, um, obviously you can only stand there for so long before you start, you know, shifting from one leg to the next, kind of looking at your watch or, you know, whatever, and, and trying to see when this is going to end. Um. And that really hurt the spiritual life because people just didn't understand what was happening, uh, and the the church insisted, the the Western Church insisted on this use of Latin, and the Coptic Church actually faced a similar uh, crisis switching to Arabic, um, when uh, when you know Egypt was conquered in the eighth century, uh, the the uh, you know the, the holy language of, of Islam is is Arabic, and after a while, you know later, you know, a couple maybe a couple hundred years later. Uh, the cops stopped speaking Coptic and it came to a point where, where people said, well, you know, we have to translate the liturgy to Arabic. Um, and this was you know, horrendous for some people like you, you, there's no way I will speak the words of the Eucharist of the liturgy in the language of Muslims, right. In the language of these oppressors, I will never use that language to utter holy words. Right. How can I? And there are people who fought the use of Arabic because it was the language of Islam. it was the language of oppressors pushed upon us and and somehow by by praying in Arabic, I have neglected um, you know I, I've, I've given up on the, the the memory of all those people who had come and gone before me because I switched to Arabic and I've, I'd forgotten the Coptic obviously, this is something the church did did very successfully and, and eventually cooler heads prevailed and the church did switch to Arabic, uh, thank God because had it not done that. Uh, we may have f- had a similar fate of of losing a lot of of what we understood, and now that the church has a diaspora and has gone outside of Egypt, uh, the same issue comes up, right? Do I, you know, do I pray in French or not? Do I pray in English or not? Do I pray in German or not, Dutch, whatever language the the country happens to be in Af- you know, in Africa, in Kenya, whatever. Um, and the church was far quicker to adapt, right? There's still the the holdouts that said, no, no, we need to pray in Arabic or Coptic, right? But very quickly. Um, the church recognized, no, we we need to switch these other languages and we need to start praying in these other languages because we we don't want to make this this same mistake. And so, um, you know, we we talk, I talk about this issue just because this was something that affected the the Middle Ages and we see it affecting now um, us uh, in in many ways, right? The combination of these two factors destroyed, uh, if you will, uh, the liturgy. So the consequences is we see a split between spiritual life and liturgical life, right? I, I kind of have my own spiritual life. I go, I pray, I do my thing, you know, but then I just go stand there in the liturgy. And unfortunately, you know, you hear youth who say things like this, right? I have my own. I'm very spiritual, but I just don't like the liturgy. And the liturgy is someplace I just stand at. Um, so... This split is a very dangerous split, right? So no, now the Eucharist no longer is the culmination of my spiritual life that kind of brings it all together the week for me, rather. But it's just a thing I got to go to on Sunday. Hopefully, I see some friends, and that's it. And then I also have my own prayer life, but liturgy is something I just got to get through. Very dangerous. The option to under, It's optional to understand the liturgy. Uh, it's just to be performed. And this is extremely dangerous, um, whether or not – the, the, the efficacy of the liturgy is in the fact that it was performed correctly, right? So as long as I do the things in the book, I say the words, I make the movements, right? Kind of like some, uh, you know, some, some uh, magician or some Merlin or some, some guy who's going to like, you know, you know, ear of bat or whatever else they're going to throw in there, right? That, that this is somehow going to just do it. And then the, I don't really need to understand what's going on, you know. the The priest walks by, I bow down. I don't know why I bow down, but as long as I bow down, that's good, you know. He walked by with a censer, and I bowed, and and I see everyone else bowing, so I kind of bow, and I don't really need to know why I need to bow, but as long as I bow, it's it's good things, right? And and so I have to perform these things, but I don't really need to know, and no one really knows. And and if you ask your dad, well, why do we bow? He's like, well, you just do it, you know. And that that that's a very dangerous consequence, right? And that, that can't be allowed to continue, right? Because we don't just do these things because God is waiting to see if we bow or not, right? They're for us. They're for my spiritual edification. They're for me to connect to God. God's not waiting to see if I bow. God's not checking off how many bows he got this liturgy versus last liturgy and drawing trend lines, right? This is all about, this is all about my life, my spiritual life with God. We could easily enter a church back in the Middle Ages and find no one who knows what's going on, right? you walk in, there's a lot of illiteracy. There's a lot of ignorance. There's a lot of people who just don't care. And a lot of people are like, well, as long as the priest knows, I mean, someone knows, right? The Pope knows, you know, it's in the book, right? And so, and, and, and this is a very dangerous consequence. And again, something we see in our church, right? Where I can go into a church and say, hey, does anyone know why Buna just did that? And I'm like, ah, ah. And everyone's just doing this to you. So then, then why did we do it? Then what's the point? If, if, if 80% of the people sitting here have no idea why something just happened or why we said what we just said, then, and what are we doing to whom are we doing it to, Do we, do we worship a God who's like just keeping track and making sure we do all the things or do we worship a God in truth and love who wants us to worship in truth and love and spirit? There was a widening of a gulf between the clergy and the laity. And like I told you before, the liturgy means work of the people, not work of the clergy. And we don't say that the, the liturgy or anything is a clergy thing. The clergy and the laity are together. But there became this big d- dichotomy between clergy and laity. Right? It's, it's either you're one or the other. Okay? And the clergy were way, way, way up here. And the laity were way down here. And they were just unnecessary. And there was a separation between them. And no longer were they the shepherds and those who loved, but they were, it was, it was power, it was prestige. It was, you know, oh, please, you go get the, 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 the first seat. And when he walked by, we all bowed, right? And somehow the clergy became this, the first-class citizens and the laity became the second-class citizens. Right? This kind of gulf, this kind of divide between clergy and laity is extremely dangerous. And it can't be something that we allow to happen in our church either. Right? The clergy are the chief of the servants; they're, they're the head servants. Right? They serve the people. Right? They are they're not above in any way. And like we said, we we, we insist that uh, in our in the Orthodox Church that a priest can't perform a liturgy by himself. Right? That he has to have people around with him at least one other person right so that they perform it together that there's some people there um and this this kind of deadening of the liturgy gave birth to the protestant movement right the reaction was well look if if you if your spiritual life is something else than your liturgical life and no one knows what's going on and no one understands what's happening and you're just performing some rituals then why are we doing this and that's a perfectly legitimate question, right? That's the, that is the right question to ask. In fact, uh, given what they were seeing, right? And so once once we we enter into this realm where there's ignorance and uh, just bl- mindless blind following of rituals, then someone's going to come along and say, "Well, how about how we worship Christ in truth and spirit?" And everyone's going to nod their head and go, "Yeah, that's that's what we should be doing." So this this overreaction of of Protestantism created if you will, uh, this overreaction of Catholicism created Protestantism, right, reacted to it. So I, I have this, um, this, this, this kind of uh, small continuum that I I'd like to talk about. But if you, if you think about Catholicism, we can start on the left. Um, it's all about the rituals. It's all about the body, right? And there is no meaning to the rituals. It was just do the rituals, do the things. Right? And so the Protestant church came along and said, well, no, it's not about the body. It's about the spirit. You don't have to do the rituals, you don't have to make the sign of the cross, you don't have to prostrate, you don't have to fast, you don't have to take the Eucharist, you don't have to get baptized, you don't have to do any of those things. It's all about the heart. If you want to get baptized, you raise your hands, and you say, Lord Jesus, I want to accept you as my personal savior. No water, no priest, no rituals. And so if you really look at Protestantism, you find that it's a very strong reaction to a lot of things in Catholicism, including this idea of over-ritualization and so the consequence was no rituals, right? You know, I don't need to stand even when I pray. I will sit. I will just cross my legs and sit there. And none of the rituals um, transpired or, or, or continued over into uh, Protestantism, unfortunately. So you see them as two reactions. And, and, and I'm very proud to say that when you study Orthodox, you find it really is in the middle, that we don't take rituals alone and we don't take spirituality alone but we always put them together and we really can't have one without the other right we we really can't just have rituals without meaning there's there's no point to that and we can never allow ourselves through ignorance or any other you know deception to think that that's okay that as long as we just do the things that we're fine um Luis boyer he's a he's a um, a very uh, noted, noted scholar in, uh, in, litur- in, in liturgics. And he was part of this, this liturgical revival, liturgical movement in the 18th century. Um, he says, Protestantism can only be understood if it is seen as a reaction to a religion that had degenerated. And look at his words. He's Catholic, by the way. And he's talking about the Catholic church. Had degenerated, if not into magic, at least into superstition. I mean, look how strong he, he words this, right? So the religion had degenerated, into, ma- if not into magic, into superstition. And unfortunately, every once in a while, I see this in the Coptic church, right? And we have to be very aware. We see people do these things, this superstition kind of things. In the Middle Ages, when few people, even among the priests, understood Latin, the tendency was to make of the liturgy something that took on the character of the incomprehensible. Something at which people assisted, but in which they had no participation. Something that issued from the hands of the priest, but like some prodigy that escaped even him. Right, so it's like this this mystical, incomprehensible thing, right? That's, that's amazing that no one understands that he just, it comes out and we followed the book and we did the things and everybody's happy, right? And the, pre, and the people can just stand there. They don't understand. They had no participation in it. Right? And we can't allow in our church this to happen. We can't um, come down to this point where uh, degenerate into magic and superstition uh, just emanating from the hands of the priest. It's it's a life. Okay. So what happened to the Orthodox churches? Well, luckily we were conquered by Muslims. <laughs> um, and so we didn't uh, go through many of the, these things that happened in the Western church. We were just at the, you know, in the Coptic church in the, in the eighth century. And then later the Ottoman empire conquered the, the Byzantine uh, world. The, the, the churches sort of went into lockdown and they didn't change. And so we were very isolated uh, and we lived this living liturgy where, we're the, we're the, where the, the liturgy took on this characteristic of, of life and, and, was very consistent with the liturgy of the past. Uh, and the beautiful thing, as I mentioned last time, was as we do more research uncovering um, texts from the old liturgy and rituals from the old liturgy and patristic writings about the old liturgy, uh, we find really that, that our liturgy is, is very much in lockstep with that old liturgy, right? And, and that we, just by locking us down and, and isolating us, and just we just kind of continued on, we were able to keep this, this thing going, uh, which is really nice. Um, the liturgical movement in the 17th century. This the the quote I read you from Louis Beyer is is part of that movement. So what happened is after the Protestant um, sort of left the the Catholic Church, the, there was this thing called the liturgical movement and a revival in the, in in the Catholic Church where they went back and they said we've really lost touch with a lot of things, and they did a ton of research uh, about the early Eucharist and about how the early Church did things, uh, and we can benefit a lot. Um, from, uh, from, from this, this research uh, that from the, the Catholic history, of the liturgical movement, uh, this really nice quote, the Orthodox church has preserved the spirit of the early liturgy and continues to live by it and to draw life from it. So after, you know, 17 centuries, they go back and they start researching all the stuff that happened in the early liturgy and they find, wow, look at these Orthodox guys who've just been sitting around, you know, wearing black and, and not changing much, they appear to have just preserved this thing and not allowed it to, to change and to degenerate uh, the way it had in the Western church. Um, having said that, the liturgical movement was great uh, for the Catholic church because it really revived them um, into a, a beautiful liturgical movement. And now the mass has become a very important part of, of the Catholic church. Um, you know, one could argue, and and you know, this is an argument for the theologians uh, above my pay grade. You know, but maybe they made it now a little bit too accessible, right? So, you know, you go to Vatican II, right? The liturgy gets shortened to like half an hour or forty-five minutes, and now they've got all kinds of music, and it's on all kinds of languages, and they've got a banjo liturgy, and a you know, a drums and guitar liturgy, and 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 now they've made the liturgy super accessible. <laughs> um, you know, you can argue if we went too far, or whether or not the Orthodox churches are going to follow soon. I don't know what's going to happen, and it probably won't happen in my lifetime. Um, but their their reaction, and 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 after the the research they did, is they shortened the liturgy and they made it extremely accessible in the language of the people, very short, very sweet, and um, you know, and continued that uh, that tradition. Um, okay. I'm almost done. So in our church, uh, we have three liturgies, uh, the liturgy of St. Carlos, St. Basil and St. Gregory. Uh, The liturgy of St. Gregory is directed to the son and the other two are directed to the father. Um, And uh, by the way, the liturgy of St. Carlos is uh, St. Cyril is actually the uh, the anaphora part. The first part of the liturgy is written by St. Mark, the evangelist. Uh, And this is the liturgy that he was praying when he was pulled from the church in Alexandria and was martyred. Um, St. Crullus in the fourth century, fifth century took that basic uh, liturgy and he added some litanies to it and he kind of shuffled things around and that became the liturgy of St. Crullus. So the origin of that liturgy is actually St. Mark. So interesting. A factoid. There's lots of other liturgies by St. John Chrysostom, St. James, Clement, Ambrose of Milan, and the Ethiopian church has over 20 liturgies that they use. I actually have this book in my house. I took a picture of it, um, and if you want, you can borrow it one of these days, uh, but uh, you know, it's under lock and key as far as I'm concerned. Um, all the liturgies of the Ethiopian church, they got ones from St. Athanasius, John the Son of Thunder. They're really beautiful, um, and we actually used to, in the Copy church, pray a lot of these liturgies, and you would find priests who would pray you know, open this book and, and take out a liturgy and start praying it. Um, and then along uh, a couple of years back, Pope Shunida decided that uh, he wanted to kind of ban this practice because he felt like there were too many liturgies running around. And he said, let's just stick with the St. Basil, St. Carlos, and St. Gregory liturgies. Um, and he kind of forbade uh, priests from praying from some of these other liturgies, uh, primarily because not, every, not everyone knew the liturgies. Uh, maybe they were being performed incorrectly. Um, uh, you know, I remember when I was younger, I haven't seen this lately, but when I was younger, I would, I would run into old school priests, uh, some of these older priests who would just, you know, pull out the liturgy of John, Son of Thunder, and they would pray it. And they, you know, I don't care. I'm going to pray in the liturgy I want. And, um, but now that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, but anyway, that used, to, that used to be the case um, uh, back in the day. So the lessons learned, and, and I'll end with this slide, is, is praying in a foreign tongue is, is dangerous. It kind of devastates the spirituality um our church could be moving down the same path of the 11th and 15th century uh the what's going on stage i don't know what's going on enter the church no one really understands what's happening uh one of the beautiful things about uh, the seminary we have here at uh, in our diocese the act seminary or some of the other seminaries are just the access to books and youtube and anaphora and soundcloud there's so much knowledge out there now now it's um i, I think we've averted this this crisis of a, of uh, I mean the crisis still exists and a lot of people don't know what's going on but back in the day you couldn't find out what was going on no one knew maybe the priest didn't know Um, but now at least you can access it you can figure it out and if you took the time to read you would figure it out so it's there Um, and certainly we've benefited from the research of this liturgical movement many of the books I have in my own library uh, about the liturgy come from this time and, and the research they did and, and, the, and the stuff they uncovered uh, and the way they put it all together is really quite beautiful uh, and helps reinforce us um, in our understanding of the Orthodox liturgy. Uh, so anyway, so I, I hope you uh, benefited from this this, uh, this talk and, and these lessons learned and, and some of the things that uh, I think we can take away from it and not just as a historical lesson but as a spiritual lesson uh, that we can't allow ourselves to just uh, let the liturgy become something that we just kind of perform and and do without really um, understanding and, and and comprehending. Thank you very much God bless you and glory be to God forever. Amen.